Ladies and gentlemen, the doctor is in the house. Hi everyone, it's Dr. Anne Shalfont here, and today I'm interviewing Stacey Toomer and Nero de Bodicott from an organization called Reframing Disability. Before we get to that interview, here's a little about reframing disability and also about Stacey and Nerida. Now, you've all heard of TripAdvisor. It's a consumer-to-consumer -consumer service that gives us inside information and tips from other holidaymakers so that we can make a better decision and feel more confident about our own holiday plans. Well, you could say that reframing disability is a little bit like the TripAdvisor of the disability or special needs sector. It is a family-to-family -family service where parents of children with a disability or special support need provide information and support to other parents of kids with special needs. From guidance on treatment options to peer support programs for parents themselves, reframing disability empowers families to make confident and manageable decisions for their child and their family. Until now, this kind of family-to-family -family service has been notably missing in the disability and learning support sector. The two formidable women I interviewed helped establish reframing disability. First, Stacey Toomer. Stacey is Reframing Disability's founding CEO and she is the mother of three children, including her son, who has a disability. Stacey is passionate about creating innovative, contemporary, evidence-based approaches to supporting children with disability and their families. She takes a strengths-based approach to her role and her life, shifting the focus away from deficits to a place where people are seen for what they can do. Ultimately, Stacey is working to break down barriers and change the disability narrative so that all families feel empowered to choose the life that they want to live. Before her own parenting journey, Stacey worked in project and events management, and she traveled Australia working for V8 Supercar Team. She held roles as a project manager and team leader at early childhood intervention organizations like Plumtree, where she was involved in co-designing and facilitating a highly successful evidence-based parenting program. Second, Nerida Bodicott. Nerida is a board member and the treasurer of Reframing Disability. She is an accomplished chartered accountant with over 30 years experience, and she is currently finance director at Taste Creative, which is an inclusive creative agency. But perhaps most importantly, Nerida is the mother of 12-year-old Madison, who has a disability. Nerida is a passionate public advocate for rare diseases, disability, inclusion, and medicinal cannabis for intractable epilepsy. She speaks regularly with media and local, state, and federal politicians. She also provides support to other families in the rare diseases additional needs journeys. Here's the interview with Stacey and Nerida from Reframing Disability. All right, so um, Stacey and Nerida, thank you so much for giving up some time this morning to talk with me about Reframing Disability, but also about your own journeys that led to establishing Reframing Disability. And I feel like... Um, you know, please correct me if I'm wrong, but this seems to tap into a big gap um, in the disability, I suppose, industry or sector where families get a diagnosis or maybe they don't 
um, but are either, either way sort of have an assessment process where they're then at a bit of a loss um, for what to do next and, and then end up somehow tapping into services perhaps through their own research or through word of mouth. So it seems to me that this service that you're offering sort of plugs that, plugs that gap or is aiming to do that. And I want to talk to you about some of the services that you offer in order to meet those needs that families have. But before we get into that, can I ask you both just to share, you know, maybe one at a time, a little bit about your own stories, um, if you don't mind. So, Stacey, maybe you could go first. Thanks, Anne. Uh, so our family um, is made up of myself, my husband, and I've got three kids. So mm. Had three kids um, born within three years of each other. Uh, life is chaotic in our household. Um, we refer to it as organised chaos <laughs> and it works for us. So our son, Alex, who has disability, is our middle child. So he's nine years old. We found out when I was pregnant with him that he had a heart defect. Um, we were really fortunate. We were... Um, uh, you know, going through the women's hospital at Randwick and were connected with great specialists that supported us through that process. So when he was born, we were immediately connected with a paediatrician because of his heart defect. Mm -hmm. And it was through that process of um, he, he went into heart failure at a few weeks old and had open heart surgery when he was um, seven weeks old. So that was... Um, it was quite traumatic for our family. It was it was really confronting, um, but it was probably about maybe four weeks after his heart surgery that we just noticed something wasn't right, um, and we had the foresight of having a son one year, um, one year ahead of Alex that we just we realized things just weren't tracking as they should be. So we raised um, we raised our concerns with our pediatrician. We were really fortunate to have an amazing pediatrician who took it very seriously and um, investigated. We um, originally, they thought he had brain damage. We had significant assessments and testing done. Um, it came back that he didn't. They weren't really sure what, what was happening with Alex, but um, the diagnosis we received at that point was global developmental delay. Mm. Um, through you know years of seeing different specialists and just you know we went through genetic clinics um and it was just it was I don't know it was it wasn't even something we we're exploring but just um the pediatrician sent off to do a specific test as part of some routine assessments and she emailed me to say oh Alex has um a chromosomal deletion and it's Williams syndrome and this was when he was about almost four years old. And I'd actually happened to know a few people that had a child with the same diagnosis. So that was quite reassuring and being able to kind of get some information. But that was um, where our journey started with Alex. We were really lucky to have an amazing team of people around us, even from, um, even from much early on that supported us. So when we got that diagnosis, we were able to... Um, to navigate it and just get the supports that we needed. Mm, and I think that, as you said, having, uh, you know, the, being able to tap into services from that very early stage obviously helped guide you by the sounds of it more specifically in terms of the kind of services to seek out. Narita, what, yeah. what about you, Narita? What, what, how does that compare with your own experience, with your own child? 
Um, the same, but different, I guess. So um, our family is my husband and I and my daughter, Maddie. Maddie's 13. Um, so at 13 months, Maddie went to hospital very, very ill. Um, before that, we didn't know that anything was necessarily wrong with her. She had sort of missed some milestones, but, you know, all those words that um, she's still in the range to be able to catch up. Um, and she just, she kept getting sick all the time um, and taking a long time to recover. So they were starting to do some preliminary tests on her, but um, at 13 months of age, we were rushed to hospital very sick um, and she almost passed away. They, at, at that stage, they couldn't work out what was going on with her. They didn't know whether or not there were, there were clearly some underlying conditions there. They didn't know whether that was causing her to be ill or whether something else was causing her to be ill. Um, and so we had from that first day, um, 12 different departments in the room um, trying to assess what was going on with her. So we spent the next, basically the next 12 months, 12 to 24 months after that in hospital, basically almost full time. Mm. Um, and they, with that first admission, she had five operations in six, seven days. Um, and eventually they worked out what she had was a gangrenous appendix, which was four times the size of it should have been in a 13-month-old child. Um, and strangely enough, um, it hadn't burst. And strangely enough, it had walled itself, which they still don't understand how she could have possibly, how her body could have possibly done that once they realised through more testing other things that she has. So... Over those two years, we found out that she has a very rare blood disease, which means she can't fight bacterial or fungal infection. So if that gangrenous appendix was to burst, like for every, anyone, it can be um, fatal. But for her, it would have been fatal faster, if you know what I mean, because she doesn't have the, she doesn't have the white cells to fight a bacterial infection like that. Um, she has a very rare brain disease and she has also... We've added to, there's also a laundry list of other things, but we've also, when she was about three or four, added to the list epilepsy, which unfortunately she's one of 30% of people with epilepsy that can't get any control of their epilepsy through medication. So she has over 250 seizures a day. Um, so once we sort of got past, you know, stabilising her blood condition, which means I have to give her a, a needle every day to stimulate her bone marrow because it, it, it's an issue for from her bone marrow, um, and then sort of piece together, you know, how we were going to deal with the epilepsy, et cetera, um, it came down to we're still looking for a diagnosis. Um, her DNA has been off around the world 12 times. She's in various research projects in Australia and around the world. Um, she just recently got written up in the medical journal that's gone, um, been published worldwide for something that they think she might have, but it's very, very, very rare. Um, there's only one chromosome that's been affected, which means um, technically means that, you know, um, you shouldn't be affected if you've only got one fault in one gene in one chromosome. Um, and also she didn't get, she didn't inherit it. Um, so it's called de novo um, because it was, the error was made at conception. Um, so it's quite, it's quite complex. 
Um, but they still haven't proven it, obviously. So for us, apart from all of her complex medical issues, she has disabilities as well, which manifests in the form of physical disabilities. So she uses a wheelchair to mobilise. She has a speech disability, so she uses AAC or alternative augmentative communication devices. And she also has um, an intellectual disability as well. So, but she's a tough little fighter and she loves life. And um, yeah, we, we just do whatever we can to make her life as happy and exciting and fulfilled as we possibly can, so. I just am um, amazed listening to both of your stories so far in terms of the fact that the, these issues cropped up at such a young age for both of your children. And from, from listening to both of these stories involved a huge amount of intervention and assessment over very lengthy periods of time and at a very frequent pace, which would have been really, I can't imagine how challenging, overwhelming, you know, stressful and hard that would be for, for the whole family. But I'm particularly thinking at the moment of Alex and Maddie and who are now, you know, nine and 13 years old, having gone through this process for, for years, um, sometimes, you know, completely unrelentingly. How, what is it about them? I mean, obviously, you're, you know, you're, you're mums and so um, you know them the best. What is it about them that has allowed them, I suppose, or helped them manage this, live with this and, and, and be, you know, you sort of talked about them being strong and, and getting through it. What, what is it about your kids that you think um, makes that, uh, you know, tolerable and manageable for them? We have always um, treated Alex just as one of the kids. Um, so he is very much, um, you know, has the same rights as our other kids and is involved. So we've kind of got a bit of a family motto that um, every one of our ch children will have access to the same opportunities. So we're really intentional about building a um, an inclusive community around him huh. and giving him the same opportunities which also means that you know he has to pitch in around the house like he's got to clean up after himself like there's you know there's rules and things to follow which I think have just um it's just instilled a kind of um sense within our family that you know although there's things that Alex cannot do and there's mm -hmm. definitely things that um you know he can't do the same as his siblings and things that he needs support with that he'll at least give it a go or we kind of look at what support we need or um really kind of focusing on equity within our family we've also been really lucky that we've worked with amazing psychologists that have supported us to speak to Alex about his disability mm -hmm. and to help him have a positive mindset. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, it's acknowledging that there's always going to be things that are hard and there's always going to be difficulties, but to really focus on strengths and what it is that he can do well and the things that he loves and to separate um, his challenges from him so we speak a lot about his brain mm -hmm. and you know because his brain is a little bit different some of these things might be hard and so we've helped to shape a positive narrative for him um, from a really young age that we can start to build that um, self-esteem and resilience as he gets older. Mm -hmm. 
and we and we kind of feed that through our whole family and everybody around us as well okay and and Nerida what about you with Maddie what do you think Um, I guess I guess with Maddie's intellectual disability it's a bit hard to know exactly how much she understands about it all so I guess she certainly understands you know if we've got to go to hospital um but I don't think she effectively realizes that she's any different to anybody else. I don't. Obviously, she she knows that not everyone uses a wheelchair. Um, she she recognizes that because she gets very excited when other people sit in her spare wheelchair, <laughs> um, or when school organised for New South Wales um, Wheelchair Association to come out and bring, you know, they bring fifteen wheelchairs to the school, and so everybody gets to feel what it's like to be in a wheelchair. And she just thought that was the ants' pants of seeing everybody else in a wheelchair. So, I guess we just try and make her life as fun as possible as it possibly can, and for the times when she's not in hospital. And thankfully, over the years, we've become less of a frequent flyer as as we certainly were at the beginning. Um, And so making sure that we're trying to spend as much time doing the things that she loves and what she loves the most is playing with a ball and and being with other people and being with her friends. And so we, we just try to make, you know, obviously, you know, Stacey and I are very, um, big advocates for inclusion um, in society, in all of society. And so for me, that means that I want Maddie to be able to do everything she possibly can do. She just needs a little bit of extra help doing it. Um, and, you know, yes, again, there there are certainly things that she, she can't do even with help. Um, but that's okay because we will just focus on the things that we can do um, and hopefully those things that she can't from an access point of view, you know, maybe we can make some changes around, you know, people's perceptions about whether or not that could change in the future. But I guess it's it's that, that positive outlook as well is that, you know, this is... Um, you know, people look at us and sort of say, you know, gosh, how do you do it all? And I just say we have a normal life. It's just a different form of normal. And quite frankly, what is normal anyway? Do you know what I mean? Like everybody's lives are different and everybody has different abilities and different contributions that they make to society. So so everybody's different anyway. So I don't really see disability as any different to the difference that we have in society already. I think um, what I've certainly picked up from what both of you have said is this can-do attitude that you've kind of imparted to your children, to Alex and Maddie, regardless of what sort of developmental level they may be at. And as a clinical psych over the years, I've I've definitely seen um, that the families where they, I suppose, have an expectation that kids can step up to whatever level they're capable of, you know, like you described, Alex, um, Stacey's, you know, there's an expectation that he might have to pitch in and help with the cleaning or packing away or doing those sorts of things to, you know, to, to the extent that he can. But there is a, there's a can-do approach in, in your attitudes that I'm, I'm hearing and a sense of positivity that's driving that. And as you said, Nerida, this idea that, well, what's normal anyway, you know, and why is there such an emphasis on that? Let's just, you know, live within our own world of what we see as normal for us and, and, and make the best of that, which is different, I think, to the other, um, you know, types of families that I might have seen over the years as well. And, you know, I suppose a different group where 
um, the diagnosis becomes, you know, foremost in, in the in the family unit and, and overtakes the family and can be so overwhelming that the that the child might be shielded um, for all for, for very good intentions, but um, from opportunities, from experiences, uh, possibly you know, cotton wool. Who knows? But again, all for very good intentions, but it limits um, opportunities and, and there's a limit on that can-do approach. And, I think families hopefully listening to this podcast and, and hearing both of you and seeing you speak will pick up on the benefits of having that can-do um, attitude and professionals as well who might be working with families um, to try and help instill that and encourage that. As you said, Stacey, there were psychologists that were kind of alongside you um, supporting that approach or that vision that you had for your family overall. So, so moving from your experiences, can I ask them, because Nerida, you said people ask you, how do you, how do, you do this? And, and I've got to say, I, I am wondering the same thing. How do both of you manage, you know, work and, and working in reframing disability, the, the building up of this organisation, your own lives, you know, the challenges and, and, and the joys that you have in, in raising a child with support needs? Um, what led you, first of all, to think that you would even have time in your day to establish reframing disability? What was the driving force for that over and above everything else that you have on your plate? I think um, I, I see it as um, I, I'm so incredibly lucky to be part of this organisation. I think just as much as I give, I receive. And the families that we support, everybody has so much knowledge and families are doing incredible things. So I think firstly, um, I have been able to learn so much and I feel incredibly grateful that I get to work in this space to continue to um, learn to be able to help Alex. Um, I guess one of the driving forces behind um, establishing reframing disability was the experiences that we had when we were working at an um, organisation called Plumtree. Mm -hmm. so Plumtree supports families um, and children in the inner west. And there was one mum's comment that has really stuck with me. And she said um, the kind of the family support that she would get through that provider was early intervention for her, whereas she went to a separate provider to get early intervention for her child. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really nice way of summing it up because I think as families, you know, we're kind of thrust into this world and it's a whole new language and, you know, we need to learn and systems we need to navigate and to be able to get that support from other people who have been through the journey is incredibly valuable. So as families, we have um, benefited from it firsthand. Um, I personally was able to, um, to be supported and learn from families who were further along and also to be able to learn from people with disability that were um, sharing their stories and experiences. Through um, that experience at Plumtree, they auspiced uh, reframing disability to be established as an organization with the intention of being able to support families all across New South Wales mm. and being able to support families from that very early point of um, identification. Mm. Nerida, can you, in a nutshell, describe some of the key services that you're offering through Reframing Disability to families? Um, it, it's probably better if Stacey answers that question. Um, 
Yeah, probably better if Stacey answers that question. Okay. I'm, on, I'm on the board um, and I'm the finance manager and I'm certainly aware of all of the services that Reframing Disability provides. I guess the driving force for me was that yeah. um, I, you know, I've been mentoring families personally myself since, you know, since I was able to sort of get myself out of that hospital on a day-to-day basis. Um, yes. Because for, for us in the rare community space, um, there wasn't much support. Um, and everybody, touching on a point that you said before about diagnosis, everyone seemed to be focused on diagnosis. And for us, that was poten- is potentially never going to happen. And yes. I think for us, there was positives out of the fact that we didn't have one because there, we weren't then limited by what people were saying, you know, that, you know, the outcomes for a child with this diagnosis are this. So for me, um, when Stacey asked me to join Reframing Disability, it was just a natural extension of what I've been doing personally. Mm-hmm. Um, and Stacey and I have known each other for a long time because we met at Plumtree um, and we all found, you know, that organisation, the services that they provided was truly family-centred. The only organisation that, you know, still still to date, with the exception of reframing disability, obviously, um, that is family-centred, that's supporting the family as a whole and not just the child with the disability. Mm-hmm. So um, I'll pass over to Stacey in relation to mm-hmm. the... Just before you do, Nerida, can I ask a follow-up question on that? What do you, you... You've sort of commented on the fact that, you know, it, that it seems like it's rare then to have these organisations that are family-centred. And yet, interestingly, we know you know, from the certainly the, the literature, the scientific literature, that when there's a family-centred approach or even for interventions where parents are a part of that, where, where um, you know, for instance, early intervention, where there's sessions for supporting parents or guiding parents as much as there might be for the child directly, it's more beneficial, the outcomes are better. Why do you think it is that then that, that you know, there are so few organisations that seem to focus on this family unit or the family centeredness as an approach i think perhaps because especially with early intervention the focus is on therapy Uh um, and therapy for the child and there's a race you know you've got to you've got to make sure that you get this sort of therapy done before there's a certain age or you know there's always that pressure around you know that um you know getting those therapy services and i guess um you know no disrespect to the therapist but they're trained in providing therapy to a child. Mm. They're not necessarily trained to provide support services to us as the parents. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess it takes an organisation that is not just providing their core, you know, their core service. I think that's where it, um, Plumtree was different because they had psychs at Plumtree as well as OTs, as well as speeches, as well as... Um, physiotherapists, but they also, under the um, amazing leadership of um, Silvana, because she was the mother, is the mother of a child with a disability, she saw that right from the beginning of her her career in, in this industry. And she's the one who fostered it at Plumtree. And I guess there's a group of us um, that came out of Plumtree who all incidentally work for reframing disability. Um, we all came under the guidance of um, Silvana and we learned the positivity and the advocacy skills 
through Silvana um, and what the benefits are of those for families because we were the ones who ultimately benefited. And that's where we all saw that we wanted other families to benefit through what we had learned mm -hmm. and the information what we had received because there are still so many families out there that haven't connected on any shape or form to any, whether it's through a Facebook group or because they, they're not aware that there are services out there for them. Mm. There's only services for the child mm. effectively. So um, I don't know if that answered your question. Sorry. I think, I think it absolutely does. And I think, again, it's that idea that, as you said, that the therapists are trained in a certain model perhaps um, and when there's the benefit of a multidisciplinary team, maybe it's easier to see that there are different aspects to that child's life, including the fact that they're part of a family unit. Um, and, and certainly when there's a parent with, with life experience also, um, you know, who, who, can, who can give you that direct um, input that there needs, to involve, there needs to be the involvement of a family, um, obviously that's... Um, you know, it sounds like that leads to that happening more effectively. But in general, I, I get the impression that it's still very much a gap. Um, hence, in reframing disability as a as a service, as you said, it's it's one of a few. So coming back to then you, you, Stacey, can you can you outline for us then some of the key services that you're offering within the organisation reframing disability? Yeah, picking up on your point, um, Nerida, about family centred practice. So that is one of the the cornerstones of what we do. It's about supporting families to understand what is family-centered practice and what is best practice. Mm -hmm. So families are often, um, you know, they have no experience in the disability world. They don't understand um, what is the best way to support their child. And quite often, even if they're a really confident um, person and a great advocate in, you know, maybe a professional capacity, when they're in this environment and it's very new, it can be really overwhelming. And often we're seeing that families are led by professionals and um, I guess aren't directing some of those supports. Mm. And as we know, families are experts in their kids so they do know their child best they know their family best and what works so one of the objectives of reframing disability is to build the capacity and empowerment of families mm -hmm. and to be able to help them understand what is their role in supporting their child with disability to understand how to navigate different services um, I know firsthand that when Alex was little, I was that parent that therapy was the goal. Like our goal was therapy. Mm -hmm. I didn't understand the objective of it. I didn't understand that actually what makes a difference is what happens outside of the therapy session. And that the therapy session is about building my capacity to be able to support Alex outside of that session. So it's about um, supporting families through our experiences of families to be able to impart our wisdom about what's going to help their child, what's going to help their family, and to be able to, I guess, just translate some of that jargon. I think there's, you know, there's so much great information. And like you said, and there's, you know, there's the research that supports best practice in early intervention, but it's, 
it's complex for families to navigate. And um, one of the ways that we are helping families to navigate that is through just some really practical tip sheets, resources, strategies from other families who are further along storytelling. So we have parents um, who are further along and people with disability that are sharing their stories to highlight some of these important points. And we also run webinars and workshops on a range of topics from, um, you know, NDIS related topics to creating a vision for your child and family. So that's one of the key parts of what we do, but it's also around, and I guess picking up on the, the name reframing disability, it is about shifting that narrative. So quite often when a child is diagnosed, um, a lot of the messaging is focused around what our kids can't do and um, barriers that they're going to face. I know personally when we um, received our diagnosis, we were given a, like a two-page information sheet on Williams syndrome that just focused on, you know, your child will unlikely be independent. They'll unlikely, you know, have their own home or live independently. And it outlined all of these things about what he won't be able to do. And if we followed that, he probably would not be doing now what he is capable of. But we acknowledge that there are challenges but we, we've made the decision to have high expectations and that's, that drives what we do and that's what we're supporting families to do. We want to change that narrative. We want them to see their child through the lens of the social model, which focuses on the, you know, the barriers that are within society around attitudinal barriers, you know, accessibility barriers, rather than the, the deficit and the focus being on the deficit within the child. Um, we do that through storytelling again. We're finding that storytelling is a really powerful way to just help families see um, a future of possibility for their child and to have hope that their child can lead a great life in the community, that they can have access to opportunities that um, they may not have thought was possible or they may have heard that messaging early on that it might not be possible. So that's, that's been really powerful. And I think the peer support, so what really underpins everything we do is peer support. We're by families, for families. We make sure that family voice is embedded in everything that we do from our resources to our learning. Um, we offer peer support groups and we're about to launch um, a series of topic-based peer groups, which will support families in those really early stages of getting a diagnosis. Um, and we've just found that it's just such an important part of the journey to meet like-minded families that have a, um, I guess, a positive mindset mm. um, early on in your journey. And it's very complementary as well to the professional services that families access. So we really see um, what we do as complementing and enhancing the work that allied health practitioners and educators are doing to support children mm -hmm. and helping, really helping families to be able to get the most out of their services and to know how to work with these professionals as well. There is a stuff that we do. <laughs> we could probably talk about this all day. <laughs> There's a, I think it's fantastic because you're so passionate, both of you, about it. And I think, as I said, it's obviously tapping into an area where there's been a really big hole 
um, it, that needs to be filled. And I think it's brilliant that, that you've identified that and, and that these services are growing. Can I ask it in a very sort of practical nuts and bolts level? So if I'm thinking about the people that might be listening or, or, or viewing this podcast, so professionals who are, you know, assessing or diagnosing or working with families, uh, you know, parents of a child who has a difficulty or family or friends of, of, of those people, and they're hearing you speak. And, and, and so if there is a family or a client that someone has who's got special needs and that family, you know, is first being assessed or, or, or receives a diagnosis perhaps, um, they ring reframing disability or they contact reframing disability. What, what, what's available to them at that initial point in time? What can they tap into straight away? You talked about storytelling. Mm -hmm. So in a practical sense, what does that look like for someone who contacts the organisation? We have a program which we've recently launched called Peer Connect, uh -huh. and that is a program that is specifically for families that are very early on in their journey or at a transitional point. Mm -hmm. And what we do, it's a structured program, and we, um, it's, I guess, it's a bit of a systems mapping exercise where we look at areas so beyond therapy. So we look at, um, we do look at, you know, what what services have you got? Um, are they meeting your needs? Are there any gaps? Are you connected to other families? Like, do you know other families that have a child with a disability, whether it's the same disability as your child or other families mm -hmm. with um, different disabilities? We look at if they're connected with the community. Um, and we also uh, ask some questions to gauge what their understanding of disability is. And through that um, collection process, we then direct them to information. So, it's about um, firstly mapping where they're at with their knowledge and their systems and services and what they've got access to, and then just identifying with them what are their priorities, and then we help to connect them to information. So we might, um, you know, they could be in a regional community and say, I've actually never, we, this has happened, I've never met another child with disability. Connecting with reframing disability was the first time they'd actually um, had any contact with another family that has a child with disability and their child was almost three years old. So we then supported them to look at what are some local um, places in their community that they could connect with other families, for example, my time. So we go through that process of supporting and guiding families. Um, that's very much focused around families in those early stages that um, are still just trying to get their head around what what does this mean? Like, what, what do I need to know? You don't know what you don't know. So we help to guide them through that process. Um, we also have the storytelling, which is um, articles on our website. So the articles, I think, are a little easier sometimes for families just to jump on the website. They might not be ready for a phone call. They might not be ready to join a peer group, but sometimes just reading through those stories and hearing from other families of how they navigate different, you know, different aspects of their journey can be really, um, I guess, inspiring and comforting as well. We also have a program um, which we are running in partnership with Monash University called Healthy Mothers, Healthy Families. I will hand over to Nerida, actually, because Nerida is one of the facilitators. So if Nerida wants to explain. Can you tell us a bit more about it, Nerida? Yeah. Um, so it's, as Stacey said, it's in partnership with Monash University. Um, it was, it's a program that's been written by um, an esteemed OT and the program's been running 
for around 15 years for memory. Um, so there's quite a few families that have come through it and it's called Healthy Mothers, Healthy Families. Um, it's about mums because, you know, the, the um, research shows that 95% of um, kids with disabilities are cared for primarily by the mum. And so what it what it is, is to focus on the health of the mother. And it's got some pretty, you know, daunting data, which we sort of all know individually, but once once it's put in, once it's put down in data from research, you sort of go, okay, you know, our health is serious. <laughs> our, our health is impacted a lot more than somebody that doesn't have a child with a disability. Um, and so, uh, you know, it, it's to try and get mums to focus on their own health. Now, whether or not that be, uh, you know, just five minutes of downtime during the day to just maybe have a cup of tea and maybe catch up with a friend or whether it's, you you know, you want to go and start running marathons or join a gym or it's whatever is whatever works for you in your life um, and is being healthy. And healthy is not just physical, but it's mentally um, healthy and emotionally healthy. And it's a program that's run over three sessions for two hours each session. And um, what happens is it's facilitated by parents and carers with um, kids with disability. I, I, I did the training to facilitate some of the earlier courses. And basically there's, um, there's a workbook and we work through with the, the mums over those, over those three sessions um, in relation to specific goals around their own health that they identify as important to them. And like everybody, everybody's goals are different to everybody else. Um, And Stacey's got a great quote from um, a mum as to the impact that this program specifically made to her life. Stacey, are you able to rattle that off or find it or... um, Give me a few minutes. While you're you're looking for it, I can also sort of talk about... um, Or give some anecdotes, yeah, because that was my next question, Nerit, actually. You know, what what have you seen um, is the benefit for these mums in, you know, spending five minutes a day just getting a cup of tea and some time to themselves to maybe read the paper, if that's what they view as their time for themselves or their time to be healthy. I mean, we've seen in the last 12 to 18 months the, the, how important our mental health is through COVID um, for anyone, let alone when you're managing all of these other issues with kids with special needs and a family unit and juggling time and therapy and, you know, everything else and feeling anxious and overwhelmed. So um, can you share some examples? Absolutely. And I guess the first thing is that we're actually, it gives us time as mums to put ourselves on the list because half the time we're not even on the list. So if we're on the list but we're at the bottom of the list, that's okay because at least we're now on the list if we weren't on the list before. Um, So it's about trying to then also move ourselves up the list. We're never going to be at the top of the list, let's face it, we're a mum, but we might be close to the top on a particular day because we've said, okay, I as one of my goals coming out of this program is... I want to walk around the block at least three times a week. Um, 
I'm not going to set specific times. I'm not going to set specific days because that is too big a goal. You know, that's too, it's not, it's not achievable in my life. Um, so it can be movable. So as long as I do that, that could be an example of a goal. And we actually do work through, we work through um, the short term, uh, as in what, if you've set a goal, what, what are you going to achieve in one week? What can you achieve in two months? And what can you achieve in, say, six months? Mm -hmm. And people can have a goal for each of those periods or they can have one goal that is broken down into those little mini sections of a week. So it's much more, it feels much more achievable. And it's looking at it from a different perspective because it's looking at it from what what can work in your life because we are all we're all busy um and we're even busier when you have a child with disabilities Mm -hmm. and juggling work and and one of those goals might be and I know that this is the case for one of the other facilitators that started with one of her goals was to get a job to Mm -hmm. actually to go out and get a job and and um a paid job sorry I should say a paid job Um, And she broke that goal down into, well, the first step that's been really critical to me that I haven't been able to get past is to just to do my resume. So some strategies were put in place for her to get her resume done. And and somebody would look over it with her and go through it and just give her some tips. And the, the next one was to set up an interview. So there's a few steps that come as part of trying to step up, set up that interview, because it is not just about setting up an interview. It's okay. I need to organize care for my child while I'm at the interview. So there's all of those back things that has, has to happen in order for her to meet that next goal. So mm-hmm. that happened and then she got the job. And so then it's not just about also getting the job. It's about managing again. So who's going to look after my child? Who's going to do pickup? Who's going to do this? Is it going to be another family member? Is my husband going to be able to do some of that? You know, do we have extended family? Do we, do we you know, change our plan with the NDIS um, to get additional funding because I've now got a job, so now I need some, you know, additional care or support that perhaps I didn't have before at all? or I had, but not to the level that I've got now. So it's that sort of, it's that sort of thing. That's one example of a goal. Another goal was, I remember, I remember this mum saying, I just want to go outside and walk on the grass in my bare feet. That's my, that's my calming, that's my calming thing of all time. Um, And the next week, when the next fortnight, when we came back from the session, she said, yep, I went out. (laughs) <laughs> I've done it for ages. I went out and I walked on the grass in my bare feet for 15 minutes and it felt amazing. So just Beautiful. tiny, tiny little things like that. And as we know, the great song from Little Things, Big Things Grow, you can then sort of go, okay, well, you know, that was actually achievable when, you know, getting five minutes, 15 minutes to just actually go out and walk on the grass was not achievable as we all know, five minutes sometimes just, no, I don't even have time for that. I don't have time to go to the doctor to, you know, to look at my own personal things. I don't have time to do that. So that's what the focus of that program is. And and I'm sure Stacey's got this fantastic quote um, because it just, it really just epitomises the benefits of these programs. And the critical thing, as Stacey said about reframing disability, is peer support. So everybody that works for reframing disability or who is on the board either has a child with a disability um, 
or has a disability themselves. And mm -hmm. so we, we are all learning from each other. So even though I'm at more ahead in my journey than Stacy is, I'm still learning stuff from Stacy mm -hmm. as Stacy is learning stuff from me. Mm -hmm. And likewise, people who are part of reframing disability, not necessarily working for us, we're all learning from them. So I learned from mums that attended the Healthy Mothers, Healthy Family session that I was facilitating from. I learned some things off those mums about things that I can change in my life. Mm -hmm. And Stacey touched on that earlier that, you know, we just continue to learn as a result of us sharing. Um, we're, we're benefiting so much more um, by receiving information that we can either use ourselves or pass on to other families who need that information. Mm. Stacey, how did you go finding that quote? I did. I, find, I found the quote. Um, it's, and I do have permission from this mum to share it. Thank you. All right. So it says, these workshops have changed my lives in ways I never imagined possible. I found a link to this course at 3 a.m. during a time I was completely broken and with no light at the end of the tunnel. After learning the journey of motherhood, it was so clear to me that I was stuck and needed to push to the balance stage. I learned that this step does, this stage does exist and other mothers had reached it. The statistics scared me, but also motivated me. And being one of the few not in lockdown, I told myself I had no excuses. The course taught me, yes, it is hard for us mothers who have kids with a disability. It wasn't my lack of ability to be strong or cope compared to others. This course gave me permission to do things for me, ask for help, hand over responsibility to others, connect with things, people that give me joy again. It linked me to services, support groups, and other mothers groups that I never knew existed. It started with some small changes and they have just multiplied. I've made over 20 changes to my life and it won't end just because the course did. I have goals to move forward and intend to keep making more. After so many years in darkness, totally overwhelmed by my children's needs, I'm finally in the light again. Thank you for having this course. Two amazing presenters who gave me lots of little hints and encouragement in my journey and will always be the little voices inside of my head that say, what have you done for yourself today? I still, I still get goosebumps. Oh, goosebumps when I hear that. I, yeah. Honestly, it's amazing. It's it's absolutely amazing. It is. And I think what makes it different to other kind of self-care, like you hear a lot, like it's such a buzzword, self-care, yes. look yes. after yourself. And I think, you know, on the surface, we know that we need to fill our cup and you can't, you know, pour from an empty cup. But even knowing that, you like housing mothers and I think being, um, I guess, confronted by the evidence initially, but also understanding that you can make a change it really is a catalyst for so many mums to actually take that step to do something for themselves. It, it's, I guess, in a way, giving themselves permission. And throughout the program, there is a um, messenger chat. So not only do the mums get the support in the group, they're connected for the six-week duration. So, you know, there's mums sharing recipes or sharing kind of, you know, tips, stuff like they'll be brainstorming and troubleshooting for each other. 
Um, and, and I know actually some of the groups, they continue to um, informally stay connected and have, you know, Friday night Zoom Zoom sessions. And um, it's just, it, it really has been an incredible support and a real catalyst for change for many moms. I think, as you say, I mean, it is, it is a buzzword, you know, that we need to engage in self-care, isn't it? But what it sounds like this program, Healthy Mothers, Healthy Families, is doing is um, creating a structure and providing a person to support you through that and the facilitator as well and, and, and different levels of support in that structure so that there is, um, in a way, you know, when you are setting goals, uh, I suppose an accountability to following through on the small steps that you set for yourself so that you do make sure you walk barefoot on the grass for yeah. five minutes, um, even if you've decided, you know, that that's, that's all you want to achieve for that week and, that, and that's enough for you in your life in the context of what's going on in your life, which, again, I think is something that's really missing, um, you know, more broadly in, in the disability sector. We know from the literature that, as you said, the, the mums take most of the burden in terms of overseeing the the vision for the family, the plan of management for the child with special needs, the way that is going to play out. Um, and so self-care is left and having a structure to really um, give them the chance and the exposure to opportunities to do that and someone to support them through that. I think, uh, you know, well, that that just in a nutshell says it all really, that quote that you've just shared with us, Stacey. Thanks so much. I, I agree with you, Nerida. You get goosebumps listening to it. It's absolutely brilliant. That is just priceless. Um, searching for that quote, I actually came across another quote, which yeah. I think really encapsulates reframing disability. So I'll Please. read this one to you. My experience with reframing disability has been amazing. When my children were diagnosed, it was very much a what now response. All of the therapies targeted them, but I knew that I was a huge part of their life. So why wasn't there any help, training, advice for me? Like if I was able to do my best, then how much better could they be? Reframing disability was just that for me, a place where I realized I wasn't alone and was able to come to terms with how my life was, had changed and become a better version of me. It's been invaluable to be able to put into practice that I needed to care for myself and for my children and to be able to learn the skills to best support my kids now and into the future. Sensational. And so I we have, Nerida, please go ahead. Yeah. yeah, I was just going to say, I think the other critical thing about reframing disability is people can connect with us in so many different ways. So they, mm -hmm. can, they can do the Healthy Mothers Healthy program if they want. They can join the My Time sessions on Monday night. Mm -hmm. um, they can... We have a Facebook yep. community group. Yeah, Facebook community group where um, they see the events that we've got going, the webinars that we've got going, the tip sheets that we're issuing, the um, sip and drink online um, nights that we've got. <laughs> I love you. I like the sound of that one. It's more and sip, but yeah, I'm all up for that's sip that. and drink. <laughs> it's very appealing to a, a mother in, in myself who's breastfeeding and can't sip and drink very much beyond the water <laughs> moment. So. I guess. I guess for those who don't want to formally engage with a program as such, mm. um, there's all of that informal support that is there regardless. Yes. You know, all you have to do is connect with us in some shape or form. Yes. Um, and all of those services and information and webinars and um, resources, they're all there. And I think we've forgotten to mention that Everything that we provide is free. 
There is no cost to anybody in relation to the services that we provide at Reframing Disability. We were very fortunate to be provided with a grant um, to provide these services and it's, it's incredible um, the work that the team is doing and the, the information that is being that is coming out of all of the brains of all of these mums and dads, um, and we have lots of dads on um, working for us as well. So it's um, it's a very balanced approach. Um, mm -hmm. it, it it it's incredible. It's you know I, I guess I can you know I'm, I'm part of the organisation, but as a parent, you know, if I'd had this back when it first all started unfolding for us, you know, um, nearly 10 years ago. Wow, I, 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 I can't imagine where I'd be. And so for me, I just want others to not get to their child being five. Sorry about that, Inner West, on the flight path. Flights have started again. <laughs> That's okay. um, um, I don't want people to be five years down the track and, and still have the medical model in their head mm. and have not been exposed to the social model of disability and the, um, the positive things around how their child's life can be and their life can be, to mm. be honest. Um, I, I don't want people missing out. And so mm. by us also providing all of our services are online, everything is online. So therefore we can reach people, you know, during the day, during the night, whatever suits them. Um, if they're in Sydney, if they're in regional New South Wales, um, you know, we're reaching people actually all over Australia. And I think Stacey, you said that there were some people from overseas that had recently joined one of the mm. um, couple of the webinars. You know, we've got great speakers who come in to talk about their experiences and their expertise, and sometimes they're therapists and sometimes they're parents. It's mostly around parents, mm. um, but it's lots of different topics. So say, for example, we had a webinar on don't say the word, you know, let's start talking about the word disability mm. um, and we had a great talk about, you know, everybody has their own journey around that word and when we're all comfortable with saying that word. And we had some great speakers talking about their own journeys around the use of that word. Um, we've got another one coming up next year around representation in media. I know for me personally, when I saw a young man at the Plumtree AGM um, who had a disability, talking about all the things that he had achieved in his life, that was one of the pivotal moments for me going, my daughter has the, if she's given the opportunity, she can do lots of things. Mm. Um, and so if others can see that, then hopefully we can change, we can change the mindset of society around mm. worth mm -hmm. um, yeah. of everything. I think that's why we really put such an emphasis on the storytelling about being able to amplify the voices of people with disabilities for the audience of families because there is so much that you can learn. Um, like Nerida, I also heard that um, young man speak and I just remember that moment of thinking, oh, that could be my son. Like, that could be Alex. And just being able to have those expectations for your child is a real driving force. So it's, yeah, it's so important to have those positive role models 
Um, and from a really early age, I think it just completely changes expectations, which changes the way you approach things as a parent. When you, when you see things differently and you want more and expect more, it, you, it just completely changes the way your child can develop and the mm. opportunities that they get access to. And there's more and more opportunities becoming available. Um, I have a number of jobs. Um, I also work for a film company and we make films about people with disabilities, but we don't just make people um, films about people with disabilities. We actually employ people with disabilities to work as a crew. Um, and there's also our sister charity to the film company is called Bus Stop Films. And that's a film program, film studies program that's set up to teach people with intellectual disabilities how to be filmmakers. And that program is now running all over Australia. And a film that they made in Mongolia is now up for an Oscar nomination. That is amazing. Made by people with disability about a story about a person with disability. So how's that? What, how- a, what, a, what an inspirational story. Nerida and Stacey, I'm getting the impression that both of you either get very bored very easily or, or have just magically found a way to find <laughs> another 24 hours in your day that none of the rest of us have sort of come stumbled across yet. But, 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 in, but in all seriousness, I, I, can, I can clearly hear from both of you, apart from your, you know, absolute passion for what you're doing um, and your generosity, to be honest, in terms of giving of your time back to families in order to empower them. Um, the fact that this is, you know, if in, if the nuts and bolts of this in terms of the benefits, it's free, as you said, um, and we know that we all need more of those sorts of services for, for families. It, it reaches people on a number of levels, whether it's through, you know, tip sheets or whether it's through direct contact or whether it's through seminars or webinars or whether it's through a facilitated support group where there's multiple sessions, you know, sort of stretched across a period of time. There's so many different ways from the sounds of it that families can tap into your services. And then, as you said, Nerida, um, you know, the fact that it, everything is online, it's, it's accessible, it's globally accessible, uh, you know, for families to connect um, and the benefit that that has for families, but the the we know in the literature again the ongoing benefit that has for for the back for the kids or or, or the, you know children with with the difficulties or special needs or you know whatever uh, you know disability etc. Um, because families when they're empowered, we know that then the, that has flow on effects that are much more positive for the child in terms of this can do approach. The idea of stepping up, giving them a go, looking towards independence. Um, Etc. So, so with with all of that in mind, you know, as a clinician, I'm thinking that I would have loved, you know, with with some of the. Fa- I can certainly see a way that, you know, if I was assessing a child, that I would want to suggest that that family tap instantly into a service like this. You talked about that initial sort of. Um, in the peer connection or the peer support sort of program, um, so to speak, that there's a, I suppose, a type of an assessment or information gathering that happens where you're, you know, looking at what's the family context, what information do they have, what don't they have, what do they need, what are some of their goals, um, you know, what direction can you help steer them in? And I think as, as clinicians and as therapists, you know, I think we lose sight of how critical that actually is in 
in leading to effective therapy if we don't take into account the family's context, their 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 time limitations, their goals, the, the things that they want to achieve, which may not be what we as therapists think is the most important thing at that particular point in time, there's a disconnect and uh, and therapy then falls down no matter how many hours you might want to throw uh, at a child. So I, I suppose with that in mind and thinking about things like the NDIS, uh, where you know, as a model, it's it, it, it you know it's meant to be something that is co-designed, I suppose, by the family, and uh, you know the support you know professionals within that who help build plans and then you know try and expedite funds for families to tap into various services. Uh, you know, do you think with your experience now in setting up reframing disability in the way that you've got these services uh, structured and the success that you're having? Are there things that we could be doing better um, in the disability sector overall? I, I suppose with the NDIS in mind or in other areas. Where do you where do you sort of what direction do you think we could be taking or should be taking moving forward? I feel particularly with um, in the therapy space. I think you know now that families um, you know their child's diagnosed or they get access to an NDIS package and then they go down the therapy route. Mm. Um, therapy and early intervention is, it, it's very important. My, my son still continues now at nine to regularly access um, speech therapy, occupational therapy, psychology, various other services. But I think it's about reframing the way families use these services. And I think this is about educating families, but then also the professionals being able to support families in understanding how to use these services. So we see our therapists as um, experts that we consult. It's around how can we utilize the expertise of our therapists to support our goal or our vision for Alex. Um, In the earlier days, we did do a lot of, you know, weekly clinic-based therapy. But as we started to understand more about what was best practice, it it really shifted to what it looked like. You know, we used to do, um, you know, our OT would be suggesting to us, let's build Alex's strength. Let's do that through, you know, rock climbing or climbing the monkey bars. But she really took into account what our life looked like. So having a therapist that was able to um, guide me that way in the early years helped to build my knowledge and also then gave me, I guess, a framework for being able to, um, you know, to ask for that when I then went and saw other therapists. I think as well it's about um, families just doing things a little bit differently I think with the NDIS, there is so much capacity to be creative. I know in the earlier years, there are definitely more limitations in what you can access with your services. But I think it's about doing things even differently within the service system. Um, It's about, you know, coaching, getting your um, telehealth. Telehealth is incredible. You know, our therapists live, we live in Queensland. Our speech pathologist is in Sydney. Our occupational therapist um, went on maternity leave. She lives in Western Australia and they're the people that support our family. (laughs) And we do that through coaching. Um, You know, during the week, I write down lots of things that have kind of come up during the week, things I want to troubleshoot. I take videos, you know, I take photos, I send them things. And then we spend that opportunity brainstorming, troubleshooting, 
making a plan for the next few weeks or however long it is. So I think we have a role to educate families, but I think it's also about therapists um, thinking about how they can work to support families, but also bringing families along on that journey with them. Mm-hmm. And Nerida, what do you think? What would you um, want to say? I, I guess um, the NDIS, I just pick up on the point you talked about co-design. I really w- wish it was that actually. Mm. Um it, it, it's set up to be like that, but yeah. the end result isn't that, unfortunately. Um, you know, we, we, we are all asked to, you know, provide reports around what support our, our kids need. We do that. And then, you know, a little calculation is done in the background and somebody says, okay, well, this is how much money you're going to get. And that's not really co-design because it's sort of there's a, a, um, a disregard for all of that work and the reports that we put together to say this is the support we need to achieve the goals of this child. And to be, to be honest, some of those goals will be lifelong goals, you know, um, just because my daughter's in a wheelchair doesn't mean to say I'm not going to do things that will assist her strength in in trying to walk, Mm -hmm. in transferring, in building up her core strength, in all those things. Um, So I think there, you know, I think there could be a lot of work done in relation to listening to parents and carers of um, people with disability around that Mm co-design. I think, you know, because then what could happen is, you know, the um, utilising those funds differently out of that mindset of therapy can then occur um, because there's plenty of us parents who are outside of that therapy mindset now um, and want to use that, but it seems that the system is still hung up on that, that therapy model. Um, and so I think, you know, I think there's some work to do and I'm glad to hear that there's quite a few people um, and there's a number of people that work for Reframing Disability that are on some of the um, advisory boards, the parent advisory boards and consumer advisory boards for the NDIS where these, these you know, tweaks, it's really just a tweak. They're just tweaks to the system that that really just need to happen and could be easily could easily happen Mm. um you know I'm a chartered accountant so I look at it from a numbers point of view um and you know it's it's I'm I just want to utilize the funds to the best of my ability to achieve the goals for my child that might look different to you as a NDIS planner um because you know you've got these this sort of band with which you've got to work um and it yeah I I I just think that there's there's more work that needs to be done on that um it's you know it's a great system it just needs tweaking it really needs tweaking Mm. um I guess the um the other thing in relation to um say therapists I guess is that but you know but I'm conscious of everybody's capacity um, around understanding and taking into consideration what you were saying before about the family and you know what you know we all Stacey will attest to this we get our homework from the therapist session um, as to what we have to do outside of the therapy session and 
once once you change the fact that you know well everything that i'm going to do is going to in life is going to have an ot type aspect but we're not necessarily going to do it in an ot type ot type of way mm -hmm. um then effectively we are doing our homework um, we're just not doing it in the format that was maybe suggested to us mm -hmm. do you know what i mean absolutely there's so you know there are so many things you can achieve by going to the playground or the beach yes. that you know are quite different to your um kind of clinical traditional therapy activities it reminds me of an experience we had with a speech pathologist which was really early on in our journey and i think that was kind of my turning point when i realized like this is just not working for our family uh -huh. and three kids under four like it was it was just out of chaos and you know Alex was crying all the time and like life was just you know life looked very differently back then to what it does now we would go along to our speech therapy appointment every week and I think it was two and she was um trying to make him sit at the table so the whole time was spent trying to get him sit at the table and she would tell me well this is what you have to do when you get home so I was like pulling my hair out with three young kids trying to get him at home to sit at the table I'd ask my husband to take the other kids out so I could just focus on keeping him at the table and after months of this I thought there has to be a different way like this is not working for our family fortunately that's when I moved to a different um a different therapist and they um because the previous therapist as well said you can't bring your kids along you can't bring your other kids along it's distracting but I was like that is my everyday life like my kids <laughs> my kids are there at home mm. new therapist she immediately said you've got three kids how can we use them you know play coaches they can model things to Alex. You know, there are so many different ways that they can be involved that's going to help your family life. And that was the turning point. Um, I just wish every family kind of got to hear those messages really early on. And I think that is the power of storytelling and hearing from other families just to go, oh, okay, this isn't working for my family. Mm. What can I do differently? Or mm. finding, you know, what is aligned to their own family values and mm. family experience. And as a professional, I, I wish that more professionals could hear those stories um, that you're describing where, you know, you, you need to, you know, the idea of reframing and reframing the concept of what therapy looks like, as you've both indicated, making it more dynamic, thinking about the fact that it is not just, um, you know, acceptable, but possibly ideal to be incorporating, um, you know, goals for therapy and embedding them into daily life and, and incidental learning opportunities through visiting the park and the beach and, you know, setting the dinner table or playing with your siblings or whatever it might be, um, where you can, you know, more naturally find find engagement and motivate kids and, and adolescents as well when it is a part, a more logical part of connecting to what their daily life activities are. Ladies, just to, sorry, Nerida, go ahead, please. Let's say, and reframing life really, yeah. um, you know, for example, my, I was told that, you know, my daughter would never go to a mainstream school. Um, she went to mainstream school in a mainstream class for all of um, from kindy to year six, She's in year seven at a mainstream school. You know, obviously the curriculum has to be modified a great deal for her um, and they've made, had to make modifications to the program in, in other, you know, just in every day, an everyday sense for her. But she, she has 
she has learned things that she wouldn't have learned if she wasn't exposed in that environment. Mm. More importantly, she has made so many friends and so many parents at primary school still comment to this day that their kids have learned lifelong lessons around difference, disability, empathy for the fact that Maddie was at that school. Uh, You know, some adults don't get to learn those lessons in life. And so those kids and hopefully some of the parents of those kids have learned those lessons by default without without even thinking about it. Um, And she's got friends that, you know, have been friends since kindy and are still friends today um, who don't see her as a child with a disability. They just see her as their friend. And that's that's what reframing it is. It's it's let's not look at the negatives. Let's just look at the positives. Ladies, I think I've really uh, been so inspired by talking with both of you and I, and I hope, and in fact, I, I know that those who've been listening to this would, would feel the same, that this sense of your, your passion, your can-do approach, the way you've structured and, and, and put this organisation together to empower families, to reframe our, our view, our attitude around disability, to help them see that connecting and, and you know, through the services like storytelling, like Healthy Mums, Healthy Families, uh, My Time, et cetera, is in turn beneficial to the family as a whole, but also back to the individual with difficulties. And, and therefore, therapy can look different and working alongside professionals can look different. And that ultimately really is what the, the literature is telling us anyway, is an evidence-based approach. So I know that there'll be lots of benefits for people, for whether they're professionals, whether they're parents or whether they're friends and families um, listening to you both this morning. And I thank you so much um, for sharing your story, but for sharing your attitude and your, your sense of, you know, go for it really with the organisation, with the services you're offering and, and your positivity. Just to finish up, is there anything you really want as a take-home message for people listening that we haven't covered or that you would just want to drive home one more time uh, before, before we end? To families, I just want to say you make the difference. You know your child best. You are your child's advocate in those early years. You are the one that's going to make the biggest difference. So empower yourself, build your knowledge, build your skills, build your confidence to be able to support your child because not only does it benefit the child in those early days, but it's about modeling it for your child and then being able to build their capacity. So as they grow up, they're confident in using their own voice and being able to advocate for themselves. And I think when you've got a, um, a parent that can start to do that and to be able to um, impart those skills for kids, it's really powerful. And you don't have to do it alone. There is networks like for reframing disability but other supports as well so you don't have to do it alone I guess I was going to say the same thing is that don't don't be scared to ask for help and don't see um don't see the fact that you're asking for help um, that you feel that that's a negative it's actually a really big positive um because what comes out of that if you ask for help is that there's so much help out there and so many people want to 
want to help and want to help to change your life and improve your life and improve the life of your child. And so it's, you know, I guess my, my thing is just always please reach out and ask for help. I, I know how sometimes that can be hard, but um, in any shape or form, you can reach out for help. Can I just add one more thing? I, I yeah. agree, Dorita. Um, I just want to say, like, if a parent is listening this to this and saying, you know, that, you know, that sounds great, you can do it, you know, you've got these skills, you understand this. I, I know just speaking for myself personally, I was a much different person earlier on in the journey. I remember those first few years being really overwhelmed. Mm. Um, I'd never known a person with a disability. I was really scared of mm. what to expect. I had no idea what a therapist does. I literally just kind of relinquished all of my agency and was completely led for many years um, on what I should do. It was, it was a journey. Um, I didn't start out this way. I know many other families that are very empowered now that have gone on that journey. Mm -hmm. And I think it is, it's about connecting with the right people and getting the support. But um, and that will continue as you grow. Like my son's nine now and, you know, we've had to really advocate around school this year. And I spent, I think it took me almost a whole term to actually work up the courage to advocate for a few things. And I was going to advocacy workshops. I was, you know, reading all this information. And I think, you, you know, you can even feel confident and be further down your journey, but you're going to um, go through times of transition and change where you're going to, again, need to reach out or, um, you know, learn about new things, you know, maybe if your kid's transitioning to high school or whatever it might be, but it's about um, just learning. I guess like we upskill in our professional careers, it's about upskilling yourself as a parent as well. Mm. Well, as a clinician, I feel that I've already learned a lot just from listening to both of you and speaking with both of you today. So again, thank you very much um, for your time and for your passion and for your honesty and frankness um, and for the way that you've set up this service. Because as I said at the outset, I really feel like it is plugging a big hole uh, that we've had for a long time in the disability sector and industry. And, uh, and I hope that those listening will, will that they'll kind of come to you now as a first port of call, whether they're therapists, whether they're families. Um, in terms of accessing support or, or working alongside families accessing support if they're clinicians. And uh, I wish you all the very best in continuing this, this phenomenal service uh, and with your own personal journeys, with your own children, with Alex and with Maddie. Um, yeah, thank you both again. Thanks, Anne. Thanks. Well, there's two inspirational women to give us some food for thought and also to help put perspective on what matters most in life. They are unbelievable in the way that they have founded this organization and so inspiring in their efforts to help other families of kids with a disability. Please sign up to the Reframing Disability mailing list to keep across all of their services. You can go to the website, reframingdisability.com.au, scroll down and hit the subscribe button. And that link is also in today's show notes. I'd like to wish everyone a very Merry Christmas. As you might know, we had our fifth child, Timothy, recently. So it's been a quite a year on the podcast front for us. However, 
I really look forward to getting back into the podcast and other services to help families thrive in 2022 when life has settled down a little bit more with Timmy and the rest of the tribe here. May 2022 start smoothly for all of you. Take care until then. The Annie Centre podcast was brought to you by Annie Centre Proprietary Limited. Please visit AnnieCentre.com and subscribe to receive the latest updates and digital downloads from Dr. Anne Shalfant.